Welcome to BIV Today, the daily business podcast from the Business in Vancouver newspaper and from BIV.com. I'm Haley Wooden. Today on the show, Dan Sutton of Tandalus Labs talks about his company's new partnership with Postmark Brewing, as well as the opportunities in the cannabis-infused beverages space. Plus, coming up later, Tyler Orton talks to Eli Vandergeesen from NetSquared about the challenges facing nonprofits as they try to adapt to the digital age. We're accepting nominations for a number of awards here at BIV. These include our BC CEO Awards, Influential Women in Business, and our signature 40 Under 40 Awards program. You can also nominate Chief Technology and Innovation Officers for our inaugural BC CTO Awards. Applications are now open. Visit BIV.com slash events for details. billion a year. That's the potential market size for cannabis products that will be made legal under Canada's next wave of cannabis legislation, at least as a starting point. That's according to a recent report from Deloitte. Cannabis-infused beverages are expected to account for $529 million of that. Dan Sutton joins me now, CEO at Tanalis Labs. Good to have you back on the show. Glad to be here. How big is this potential market for infused beverages? (laughs) Well, I think the real answer is even Deloitte, but all of us don't really know yet. Uh, And it's certainly true that the size of the cannabis beverage market is zero in Canada today. This is going to be one that's uh, that's created hearts and minds one at a time, uh, but in the Tannel Slabs camp and with our new partners, uh, the founders of Postmark Brewing and Craft Beer Collective, we are really excited to explore the potential for this market. Yeah, so tell me about that. You just issued a letter of intent. What are you going to be working on? Yeah, so I've been really good friends with uh, Stevie Thorpe, the founder of Postmark and, and operator of awesome initiatives like Belgard Kitchen and a, a, a Havana, a ton of really cool sort of Vancouver stalwart uh, restaurant experiences uh, for for several years, and we've always been kind of looking at a way to to get into business together. Um, and he's just got such a powerful energy, such an exciting guy, uh, and he knows a lot about beverage manufacture. He also has uh, you know a deep crew in his camp that understand the systems to be able to deploy in, in an agile, light capex way, which I think is contrary to a lot of the other beverage investments that we've seen in this space. Uh, we're going to be focused on proving out a minimum viable product, starting really simply, uh, and being able to get it to market in a relatively short time frame, which is super exciting. Obviously, regulations pending, um, but it's it's going to be cool to be able to be one of the first, especially West Coast players, uh, being able to deploy a product into this category and hopefully giving both cannabis consumers today and non-cannabis consumers a new way to ingest the exciting molecules that are locked within the cannabis plant. Who do you think the early consumers of a product like this might be? Really interesting. I mean, I think that cannabis beverages probably in our paradigm lend themselves towards socializing, lend themselves possibly towards outdoor adventure, and and certainly towards sort of connection with those around you and connection with your environment. So it'll be it'll be cool to find out. But ultimately, we see this launching into a social setting uh, and and people that like to have a good time. Is that too leading? Health Canada would probably be <laughs> mad at me for saying that. Well, you mentioned Health Canada, so let's talk about the regulations around this. What sense do you have of how these kinds of products might be regulated? 
Well, we saw our, our draft regs come out several months ago. I think the actual final regs for edibles, beverages, concentrates, and vaporizers are going to be drafted relatively soon. It sort of seems timely that they would they would come out in the in the next let's say quarter. Uh, and we kind of understand the parameters. You know, you can't mix this with alcohol. Totally reasonable. We probably didn't want to do that anyway. It has to be a low dose uh, of of THC with maximum in uh, ten milligrams per package, which we we would probably skate substantially under that as well uh so that's that's totally fine and and then sort of limitations on you know added caffeine and other things like that which Mm. once again probably aren't exactly our our wheelhouse either so yeah it's it's about consistency it's about responsibility it's about being able to demonstrate through lab testing that this product is is safe and repeatable and uh you know we've gotten pretty good at understanding how health canada thinks over over the course of the last seven years of our business and so we are really focused on how to manufacture it to their high standards of uh, GPP, good production practices, and Health Canada compliance. And, and we think we've got a pretty good handle on that. Beverages have to be some of the most alluringly packaged products that you could possibly buy. What are some of the regulations around branding? Well, even if the regulations are the exact same as they are for packaging, which is a reasonable assumption to take uh, in the cannabis sector today, that means that they're not going to benefit from sort of sex- sexy, alluring, yeah, the vision of a, a Corona in a cold bucket on a beach yeah. isn't, isn't going to be feasible for the cannabis industry. So we're really going to have to differentiate on what's inside that product and the experience that it yields. I've consumed cannabis beverages. I've consumed cannabis beverages built on the back of the technology that we're going to be using, which allows for for quick uptake, you do feel the effect of the beverage within sort of five to 15 minutes. And then also quick processing. So it's sort of out of your system or you feel uh, the, the effect move away from you within sort of two to three hours. Mm. And it's really fun. I mean, you don't need very much of it. It's a very light dose. And it, it's it's certainly not something that's inebriating when dosed effectively. And that I think is going to be the core marketing strategy is people trying that product, enjoying that product, and then recommending it to a friend. What different kinds of beverages might we expect? <laughs> the tea, water, pop? Well, I'm not going to talk about what Tantalus Labs and Postmark sure. and Craft Beer Collective are trying to do because we're very much still in, in product development. We've got a few ideas of what we might we might pursue uh, but I think you know I've seen pitches about kombucha I've seen pitches about tea uh, certainly a lot of pitches about dealcoholized beer which is which is interesting uh, and I think it will be as as diverse as the as the beverage market itself if, if you consume a beverage in a social setting in an age restricted environment uh, there may very well be a company that brings you a THC infused version uh, over the over the next few years. I like what you said about the Deloitte number because the truth is we don't yet know how big this is going to be. And there's some commentary that you know this just doesn't appeal. It's going to flop. It's a hyped up product. What do you say to that? Well, I think that looking at market history, it's entirely reasonable to take that position. In the United States, we really haven't seen substantial penetration of cannabis beverages in any of the legalized jurisdictions, uh, and. You know, ultimately, it's very hard to say this is an entire new category, you know, how people are going to consume it. Um, but I also think that no one's really got it right yet. In the United States, we see a lot of products that are in this sort of 50 to 100 milligram THC range, which would mean in, in my use case is a six foot three, 230 pound linebacker sized human. I would need to consume about a quarter of that beverage to elicit a response. And any more of that than that might be overwhelming. So, uh, People that are talking about, you know, they think it's going to totally flop. I don't think they quite 
have wrapped their heads around the creativity that's necessary to bring a new product to market and win over hearts and minds one at a time on a five-year time horizon. As well, I think it's also important to acknowledge that bars and restaurants are going to want to be in the cannabis business. In Canada today, you can't smoke in bars and restaurants. There's no major, major metropolitan city where you can vaporize in bars and restaurants. I think it seems a little unlikely that they would be selling gummies or cookies or uh, chocolate. And so beverages are, are an easy substitution effect for me use case that people are already used to. So this is probably a bit of a case of skate where the puck is going. But I also uh, I also probably wouldn't be deploying $50 million in the sector, understanding or appreciating that we might not be able to make that back in year one. This is a long game plan for us. And uh, it's it's going to be super exciting to see how the, the sector evolves and be able to evolve with it. Like what we were waiting for when it came to the first wave of legalization, there were the federal policies, and then we waited for the provincial ones, and then some municipalities came out with their own. At the municipal and provincial levels, what influence might they have in terms of affecting how and where you can get these kinds of products? Yeah, I think it's very likely that that will um, be be regulated at a provincial level, and and obviously today the only place to buy cannabis products is through approved retailers. Yeah. So that's where you'll sort of see your thin tail. That's, that's where the, the, your thin lead where the first, the first consumers of this product will be buying it from cannabis retail locations, not necessarily from bars and restaurants. And over time, hopefully as we can demonstrate the lack of negative social impact associated with cannabis beverage consumption, we may see more liberalization around consumption lounges uh, and, and the ability to sell this in age restricted environments. But Time will tell. And I think municipality by municipality, we will see evolution as well. What's your best guess in terms of how long that timeline is before it becomes much more normalized? <laughs> the Dan Sutton crystal ball. It's, it's <laughs> always wrong. Um, but yeah, I mean, we're, we're already seeing a, a modest growth in the use of cannabis across Canada. It's very modest. If 15% of cannabis users were consuming cannabis on the black market last year, we might see 17% or 18% of of, of adults across Canada using the product. So uh, I think we can assume that that's, that's, you know, sort of incremental over time, but I would say on a five-year time horizon, it makes pretty good sense to be selling cannabis beverages. I, I hope that that's how it plays out. And, and all I know is that uh, governments move, move slowly and we've got to give them every excuse to advocate for this from, you know, both the tax revenue and economic perspective, but ultimately a lack of public health and safety concern perspective. We're also heading into a federal election. How confident are you that we actually see this promise fulfilled and we get this second wave of of legalization this year. Yeah, interesting. I mean, it seems like there would be quite a lot of apparatus to have to undo it because we do have these regulations sort of hard coded into the, the previous set of legalization regulations and, and whatever the outcome in the federal election, I haven't seen any candidate, you know, explicitly advocate for putting the cannabis genie back in the bottle, which would be difficult anyway. So we'll we'll have to see how it all plays out. But I think that there are uh, party members on on both sides of the aisle that advocate for for cannabis is ultimately hu- huge economic opportunity and the opportunity for Canada to be a first mover on a global stage. It seems like that sort of carries uh, bipartisan support. Mm-hmm. We'll be watching for more news from Postmark and Tantalus Labs. Can you do anything before legalization or is that very restricted? I guess you'll have to wait and see. There you go. Dan, as always, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks so much. That's Dan Sutton, CEO at Tantalus Labs.
Welcome to BIV Today, the daily business news podcast from Business and Vancouver Newspaper and BIV.com. I'm Tyler Orton, and we all know corporations are investing big in becoming digitally adept, but how do nonprofits keep up with the latest waves of digital transformations? On June 11th, the Digital Nonprofits Conference hits Vancouver, and with us today to delve into the efforts to help nonprofits become more digitally savvy, it is Eli Vandergeesen. He is a community manager at NetSquared, whose organization is helping facilitate this event. Eli, thanks for joining us on the show. A pleasure. Okay, so what are maybe some of the challenges that nonprofits are facing as we see this digital transformation overtaking a lot of society right now? Well, you ask if nonprofits are keeping up, and the answer is no. Okay. Absolutely not. Think of nonprofits as small, scrappy startup businesses, except instead of being run by people who love operations, they're run by people who are passionate about mission delivery, which means they're really great at that, but they are definitely struggling with the core infrastructure to allow them to scale. So you wander into a nonprofit and it's like moving into your dentist's office 10 years ago. It's going to be a lot of faxing, a lot of paper, and a lot of random, unconnected Excel forms. The My idea, favorite. This yeah. sounds delightful. <laughs> well, if you're feeling nostalgic, absolutely. <laughs> but, uh, but it means nonprofits often really struggle to have a good sense of who are our clients and who are the funders we work with. So, um, they're really desperately trying to get a handle of all these relationships, which obviously technology can really help with. But that's the big pain point. So I'm thinking a lot of companies, they have the dollars to invest in upscale or upskilling a lot of their employees. Is that a bit of a challenge as well? Or are there maybe easier ways that maybe some of these nonprofits just aren't aware of about how to you know, retrain or give this digital skills that their workers need? So nonprofits are blessed and cursed around that. And the blessing part is there are lots of amazing local companies who actually have discount and donation programs specifically for nonprofit. So if you're a nonprofit and you want to get access to Google Suite, email addresses for all of your members, $10,000 worth of AdWord credits for all of every month, that's totally free for you as a nonprofit through someone like Google. On the other hand, nonprofits' basic funding model constrains them. So in the business world, the more people you serve, the more successful you are, the more money you have to reinvest in your core infrastructure so you can keep scaling and growing. In the nonprofit world, you have the government coming to you or a funder and they say, here's a pool of money. Have fun with that. But if you are really successful or find that there's more need for your services than you had expected, that money doesn't grow. So what really happens is the more successful you are as a nonprofit, the more you are stretched with your core operational resources. So that's the tragic part of being in the nonprofit sector. So then tell me, you know, you mentioned a few moments ago that the challenge is always reaching out to those donors. And I think that with the digital skills that exist right now, is that actually making it easier to a certain degree? Or do challenges remain because maybe nonprofits don't know what the starting point is, so to speak? I think there's a big range of skills across the sector. So if you go and talk to the hospital foundations, if you go talk to you know the Cancer Society, they're all over that. They've got large expert teams who know their, their donors and, uh, and really have great systems in place. Uh, but if you go talk to your local nonprofit who is, say, maybe trying to run the local community garden, 
they are, they don't even know where to start. Um, and so that is really the, the audience we're trying to best serve is to start upskilling those small nonprofits who are really just drowning at the moment. So let's say I'm at a nonprofit. I, I really want to figure out what skills I can bring to the table now. What can I expect from the nonprofit event, the digital nonprofit event that's going on June 11th? Well, this conference actually comes out of a meetup we've been running as a group of volunteers for 10 years. And every month, it's a practical case study or workshop around how nonprofit staff can use digital marketing technologies. So next month, we're going to be talking about how to create reports in Google Ads, um, Google Analytics. Um, the month after that, we'll be talking about how you can use webinars for acquisition and for program delivery. But what we kept on hearing from our members is, that's great. Thank you for these practical skills. But my boss is never going to come to your free scrappy event. How do we start having a bigger discussion about how we can actually do true transformation of our organizations rather than nibbling around the edges? And so that's really the core of what we're doing in the conference. So it's not about those practical skills that everyday people need, but rather it's the things the executive directors, the CEOs, the people managers in organizations need to understand around technology. So, so many of the so the themes you're going to be seeing are all about like how do we bust down silos? How do we hire the right people? How do we structure our organizations so that we can succeed and bring in digitally savvy talent? Um, yeah, go for yeah. it. So, some great examples of that um, is we're going to be bringing in um, you know the head fundraiser from the BCSBCA, and she's going to be talking about how she has structured her own digital teams across the fundraising and communications departments so that they actually are working together on serving their clients as opposed to spending all their time working across purposes, very similar to how marketers and salespeople are always working together, but also have slightly different goals and ways of making things happen in the world. Um, or we're going to be bringing in um, someone named Beth Cantor from San Francisco, who is going to be talking about how we can avoid burning out our staff. Because now that everyone has a phone and is constantly available, and then also because all the people working at these nonprofits are there because they're also mission-driven, it means they're extremely vulnerable to burnout. So we're going to give some tips to these managers and how they can both work in this digital realm, but also not kill all their staff. So tell me a little bit, uh, are there obvious mistakes that you sometimes see some of these nonprofits making just as they try to keep up with this, what's going on digitally? I think it's that standard, boring IT answer, which is it's not about the technology. So what happens is people get super excited about a tool, a particular CRM, a particular email automation system, and they're like, I need that. So you run out, you hire a consultant, and off you go. And then you fail at that technology project because you haven't actually done the homework to really understand what are the standard workflows and business cases within your organization. So when you start with tools rather than deep understanding of the problems and the workflows, that's where you, you see the failure happen. Do you get a sense about how maybe local uh, nonprofits or local, you know, uh, or I should say Canadian nonprofits kind of stack up 
versus other jurisdictions? Are there other jurisdictions that have like a good handle on it? Or is this kind of a, a universal challenge that you see globally? So my day job actually is to work with similar technology training meetups across 41 countries. And it's the same problem everywhere. Yeah. There is no magic. You know, 10% of the Canadian workforce works in a nonprofit. So this is not an insignificant challenge. It touches so much of us, but uh, it is totally universal. We are all struggling to figure out how do we make technology work in our organizations. And I think it goes back, as I was talking about, that that core mismatch of the funding models that ultimately are hampering nonprofits. But here in Vancouver, I would say, actually, we're ahead of the game. This is a real hotbed of really innovative digital campaigning organizations. Why is that? Is it just one of those like kind of unique characteristics about the city? Or is there something that you think is tied to its, I guess, short history of digital transformation that's been going on maybe the last decade or so? So the fact that we're here in a bit of a technology hub within Canada certainly helps. It means there are skills and best practices and people who can work across the sector. So I think of someone like Lead Now or Open Media, both of which are digitally native organizations who were within months sometimes building mailing lists of 100,000, half million. They were growing and scaling because they inherently understood technology because the founders and the leadership worked online. It wasn't something that had to be shoehorned into these organizations, which, as we all know, is the way to make things not work is well, when it's sort of coming in from the edge as opposed to being a core tool of the organization. Well, as somebody who's interviewed the folks from Open Media many a time, I can attest to the fact that they are quite digitally savvy. So it's kind of cool to think about local examples that are, you know, doing quite well here. I'm wondering, though, you know, if anybody wants to find out more information about this, what's the best website or where should they go to uh, digitally to find out more information? Well, we're living on meetup.com. There's about 3,000 members at this point. Um, we do a free monthly meetup. And if you go to meetup.com slash net2van, that's the number two, you'll find us or Google, of course, is your friend. Look for NetSquared Vancouver, Tech for Good Meetup. We're all of that. Excellent. Eli, thank you so much for joining us. Pleasure. Have a great day. That's Eli Vandergeese, and he is the community manager at NetSquared, and that's it for today. We'll be back tomorrow. You can find our archives on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. Share with your friends to help us reach more people. For now, I'm Tyler Orton. Thanks for listening. That's it for our show. Thanks for listening to BIV Today. You can get notified of new episodes by subscribing to us on iTunes and Stitcher. All of our episodes are also available at BIV.com slash audio. And of course, more business news is available at BIV.com. I'm Haley Wooden. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>